happy new year. Everyone hopes and believes that 1944 will see the end of war in Europe and the beginning of a new era in Western civilization. That's from the Times Educational Supplement on the 1st of January 1944, 80 years ago. Now, of course, 1944 did not see the end of war in Europe, but the Times Educational Supplement wasn't just excited about the possibility of the liberation of occupied Europe. They were anticipating the passage of one of the most significant pieces of education legislation in England, the Butler Act. And to celebrate its 80th anniversary, we're going to be spending two episodes explaining what it was, why it still matters, and considering if it did herald the beginning of a new era in Western civilization. Joining us to discuss it, we have an esteemed guest, Sir Michael Barber. Sir Michael is the founder and chairman of Delivery Associates. Uh, They're a global advisory firm focused on working with governments and other public and social impact organisations to help deliver improved outcomes for people around the world. He was also the head of the Prime Minister's Delivery Unit in the Labour government from 2001 to 2005. His two most recent books are How to Run a Government and Accomplishment. But what is even more relevant for today's discussion is that he's the author of a book on the Butler Act, the making of the 1944 Education Act, which was published 30 years ago to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Act. Um, We're now going to be talking about it on the 80th anniversary of the Act. We're delighted you could join us today, Michael. And before we actually start discussing the Butler Act, we'd like to ask you a little bit about your own school days. Just listening to uh, your introduction, it makes me feel old, the fact that I published that book 30 years ago. The nice thing was it was just in time that the Butler's private secretary was still alive and she wrote me a letter after the book was published. I, I didn't even know she, she was around still. She wrote me a letter saying, you really captured the man that I remember. And uh, it was probably the nicest letter I've ever had uh, for a piece of something I've written. That's amazing. Well, look, um, I was born in 1955. So I started primary school in uh, probably 1959, 60. And I was in the schools that were created by the 1944 Education Act. I went to several primary schools, actually, but the school I ended up spending most time in was in Ormskirk in Lancashire. I was born in Liverpool and lived just outside Liverpool and went to school in Ormskirk. And it was a classic big primary school because we were the, we were the end of the baby boom so classes of 40 odd I've still got my one of my annual reports or, or, or termly reports uh, every Friday we did a tests on spelling um, mental arithmetic and some other things and then the following week we the way where you sat in class depended on where you came in the test so so it, you know and there's a guy called McCartney it wasn't Paul McCartney but there, were, there was a guy called McCartney who was constantly in the top two um, I was usually in the top 10. I liked it if I ended up uh, getting a result that enabled me to sit next to Susan Hartley. <laughs> but I was very I was very serious about the spelling tests and I am still quite good at spelling. And um, were the pupils doing the best in the test sitting at the front closest to the teacher? As I remember, yes. So, yeah, so, yeah, so on the teacher's right, it went one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And there were 44 in the class according to that report and yeah that 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 was right and we 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 were we were in streams so we we were streamed so this was the a stream and then there was a b stream and so that everything was ranked yeah when i tell pupils about that nowadays they always seem to think it's sort of counterintuitive that the ones that weren't doing so well were often further away from the teacher (laughs) and remember if you were 44th in the class you were still in the a stream so i don't know how it felt because i was usually, as I was saying, somewhere around six or ten or whatever. And do you remember any teachers in particular? I do. I'm not sure I can remember their names, but I do remember in the 
second year of junior school. I think he was called Mr. Crompton, having a teacher I really liked and admired. It was, it was all quite strict. We occasionally got slapped on the thigh for being out of order, told to stand in the corner. But he told good stories. He did. We did uh, sort of geography and history uh, that I liked. And you'd work out how cocoa got into your cup, starting with the growing of the cocoa beans in Ghana and how they were shipped, you know, so you, that I loved, I loved, he, he was, he, 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 I remember. And then there was a guy called, I think it was the following year called Mr. Tinsley, who was a bit fierce for my liking, but not horrible. And then I, 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 I didn't do the, the final year because we, my, my parents moved at that point. So I didn't do the fourth year of junior school in that school, but I remember those two. And then after we moved, I just had a term or so. Uh, down in the south of England. I, I do remember the teacher there, a guy called Mr. Pitson, who was very, very nice, actually. Um, but because I'd been in this big school in Ormskirk and I'd been in the A stream, I was ahead of nearly all the students in that school. So he probably liked me for that reason. And then what was secondary school like for you? I went to a Quaker secondary school in York called Bootham School. My parents, they're not alive now, but they were both Quakers and they were both from Quaker families that go back almost to the origins of Quakerism. So it was, I was steeped in that. My father had been to this school in York and his father before that. And overall, I liked it. I, was, I, was, uh, I, went, I went a year ahead. So I, I went when I was still 10. I went in I, I, my November birthday, but I went in September when I was 10 to that secondary school. It was a boarding school. I was very shy and a little bit out of my depth at the beginning. But basically, I liked secondary school and I had some good teachers and I liked the Quaker ethos. I still do. Well, we're really interested in that Quaker ethos and the, the nonconformism because we've, we have we did an episode on the 1870 Education Act a couple of months ago um, and nonconformism is a huge factor in that act. And Forster was brought up a Quaker. I think you'd call him a lapsed Quaker by the time he was... Um, taking that legislation through. Absolutely. And, and Joseph Chamberlain, who interestingly is probably a bit more of a block on the, uh, <laughs> on the act than a, than a support perhaps, but his nonconformism is really crucial too. Um, and then, um, yeah, so we're, we're, look, we're really keen as we get into this. It's, I think this is a good place to, to move into the sort of 1944 Education Act because that, that religious element, that Quaker element is, is going to be an important part of our, our story as, as well. If we sort of get started thinking about the Butler Act, as I say, we've, we've done an episode on the 1870 Act. We've done a couple of episodes on the big school building programme that follows that in the 1870s. And so obviously now we're going to do this, the, the Butler Act with you, which is 44. So we're, we're jumping a bit. So if we say, you know, on the outbreak of war, late 30s, 39, 40, what's the context of education at this stage? I'm sure you'll cover this on a future episode that the Fisher Act of 1918 was important, but it was never fully, it's, it was never fully realised. The 20s and 30s were as W.H. Auden called them, a low dishonest decades. And they, they, they never fulfilled the promise. Education reform was talked about endlessly and hardly ever done. The, there was a, a, a major piece of legislation in 1936 uh, purporting mm. to raise the school leaving age, but there were so many exceptions. Uh, it didn't really do that. And it never got fully implemented anyway because war broke out. And if you think about the numbers in any so, so the school leaving age under the Fisher Act was nine, was 14. 80% of all pupils left school at the age of 14. So that was the end of their their schooling. In the in the Fisher Act, they it had promised that everybody aged 14 to 18 would do at least a day a week in education, but that was never implemented. 
And so most people left school at 14 and that was it. Uh, about 90, uh, just under 100,000, 98,000 people got into the grammar schools, but that's a small proportion of the total. And if you then go on uh, how many got higher school certificate, how many got into university and how many finally sort of graduated, you're talking about one in several hundred that actually sort of graduated with a degree. There was a whole movement for education reform uh, among the, the working people, among the Labour Party, certainly the teacher unions that wanted to raise the school leaving age, wanted to get universal secondary education. And you have to remember that of the kids leaving at 14, the vast majority of them were still in all age elementary schools. The Haddo report of 1926 said divide education at 11 from divide elementary education from secondary education. So you'd end up with a primary and then secondary schools. But that, that hadn't been implemented with any great pace. The last all age elementary school was closed in 1971 in Somerset, 45 years to implement the Haddo report. And, the, and, and war in the interwar period, policy was basically made in two ways. First of all, you'd set up a commission or a, a committee. So Haddo was a, one of the great and the good who oversaw the report that, uh, that I mentioned uh, that, that divided schools at age 11 or proposed the dividing school. Uh, and so these reports would come out and there'd be consultation on them. The NUT response to Haddo didn't come out in 1926. It came out in 1928. Imagine now, uh, and when I was at the NUT in the, in the late early nineties, we were responding within six weeks to things. So, 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 so that, and, the, and the other way that policy was made was through the representatives on the Burnham Committee, the local education authorities, the the, the school teacher um, associations, uh, unions, and then the Board of Education. So national, local government, and then uh, and then kind of private conversations among these this group of almost entirely men. You started. I was really interested. You started with that Auden quote, "The lowest on this decade." Is it is it fair to say at this point then that the interwar years maybe it's a bit of there's, there's quite a few broken promises. There's a lot of promises about raising the school leaving age, better funding, you know, reorganising schools, and, and none of it really happens. Yes, that is absolutely right. And, and it's, it's, it's difficult in our era to remember how, how insignificant seen from the Prime Minister's office the Board of Education was. I mean, it was so somebody, one, one minister, I forget who, in the 1930s called it an outpost of the Treasury. It basically just got whatever money the Treasury gave it. It was. It wasn't a really key position. It wasn't influential. It was even later on when um, when Margaret Thatcher there was there. She she wasn't that impressed. We we've lived in an era. You, you two especially in an era where it's been a very very significant office of state. But it wasn't in the thirties. Yeah, and it's not even a department, is it? Right, it's the board of yeah, education. It's the board of education it doesn't become a department until until part part, part of this story. Exactly. Is how it yes, a exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so this is bringing us up. So we're saying the interwar year, you've got these broken promises. It's not really a high priority for government. Perhaps there is a public demand for it post World War One, social a bit of idealism and, and hope, but that's crushed. So you've got a situation where, in the outbreak of the Second World War, we've had maybe you know a couple of decades where there hasn't been much progress. Yes. Now, you would think looking at it from the outside, your instinct would be, well, if there hasn't been much progress in the interwar years, there really won't be once World War II starts, because that's going to really just stop any chance of progress restarting. Now, in some ways, from your book, that is true. So the raising of the school leaving age to 15, uh, with great irony, is, is due to start on the 1st of September 1939. That doesn't happen. <laughs> 
people have got other things on their mind then. And as you say, the, the plan to reorganise schools into primaries and secondaries, that's postponed. But actually, the, the thing I find incredibly striking about this whole story, and it's the first couple of chapters of your book, and I'd love to discuss in more detail, is that actually World War II does give this whole reform movement a huge shot in the arm. It, it gets, gives people a real impetus to get going. And in fact, you could say more progress is made in 1939-1944 than is made in the entire interwar years. Is that is that fair? I think that is fair. And and you're right. It, the, the, you would expect it to delay still further because you've got a war on and a massive war and, and Britain is seriously under threat. But two things happened really quite fast, uh, quite early in the war. One is you've got a kind of social movement that said, well, yes, of course, we're going to fight this war. And yes, of course, we're going to... Uh, do whatever it takes to defeat Nazism in Europe and prevent Britain coming under the Nazi tyranny. But we're also going to do it because we're going to build a better Britain. And that motivationally for the for the people who ended up in the armed forces, but also for the people back home who were suffering the, depri- the, the deprivations of uh, of the Blitz and all the other things and rationing, they had to. It, it became increasingly important for them to feel that this was a struggle for a better Britain and so you've got this movement that goes under the heading of a creating a new Jerusalem and the Archbishop William Temple for example was absolutely at the forefront of that uh, obviously the teacher unions obviously the the labor movement uh, and you've got to remember when church, not not in 1939 but in, in 1940 Churchill formed a coalition government in which effectively he delegated domestic policy to Attlee and Bevin because he was doing the war. So so that so the, the we, we all remember Attlee as the Prime Minister after all, but he was Deputy Prime Minister through the war and he and Bevin were key figures in this creating the context and they were linked into this big social movement. So that's one big thing that happened and it got stronger in the Beveridge report in nineteen forty three, queues around uh, along Kingsway, massive queues, sold eighty thousand copies in no time. So there was a massive surge of excitement about what life could be like after the war. But the other thing was, and I, I credit this to, to the permanent secretary at the time, the DFE, predecessor, the Board of Education as it was, the permanent secretary in November 1940, so when the Blitz is still going and they're evacuating kids across the country to get them out of the cities, he says to a small group of people, can you just go away and I'll book you a hotel in Bournemouth and I want you to design a blueprint for education after the war. A lovely task. I So this, I really wanted to dwell on this because I just find this remarkable. And I, I just want to go through the timeline. Late May, early June 1940, what's happening in the world? You've got the evacuation of Dunkirk. You've got 300,000 odd British soldiers, potentially, you know, risk of becoming prisoners of, of Nazi Germany. You kind of then, you, you know, get out of that problem and it, it's the Battle of Britain, <laughs> you know, July to October. Then the Blitz starts and all of these London offices are being bombed out. What's happening with this Board of Education, which, as you say, is not hugely significant, not tremendously well funded. By November 1940, they've relocated to Bournemouth to escape the Blitz. And they've established... Yeah, not, the, not the whole department. So, the, 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 so a lot of the department stayed in London doing the evacuations, but then they relocated this team that was going to do the blueprint to Bournemouth. And yeah. in November 1940, they established the group you just talked about, and it's called the Office Committee on Post-War Reconstruction. And I just want to quote a bit from your book, which, you know, I would completely agree with and is worth you know dwelling on. It's a striking fact that a group of senior civil servants debated vigorously and in great depth the future pattern of secondary education and the nature of post-war local government at a time before Pearl Harbour, before Stalingrad, 
when victory was anything but assured. Um, perhaps they planned thus because of the growing demand for a new Jerusalem, perhaps because it was ingrained in their professional nature as experienced civil servants, or perhaps because they thought about victory because defeat was literally unthinkable. Uh, yeah, remarkable that this is happening at this time. It, it brings almost literally tears to my eyes to think about it, to think about that situation when my, my parents were, my, my mother was 18 years old, Quaker, but really betting all her life on Churchill. But it was very, for, it was a brilliant piece of foresight. And it was also motivated, there was a slightly more cynical or negative motivation, which was they thought if they didn't do it, if the civil servants didn't do it, somebody else would do it for them and they'd be, they'd be off the pace and then they'd be caught by a movement that they couldn't control. So there was an element of wanting to control the reform as well. But that's perfectly reasonable. And it was very... And by the way, I've talked uh, recently with um, DFE senior civil servants about this group. I, I did a speech to the senior civil service and they have set up right now, Susan Ackland Hood will tell you this, uh, a Bournemouth group to look at oh, wow. <laughs> education in the future. So they're, they're, they're actually, they're, they're quite inspired by the idea. You know, when you say what brings tears to your eyes, I, I absolutely see where we're coming from. And it is incredibly inspirational. And it is something, I think, whenever you look at anything, particularly at that time around 1940, Dunkirk, uh, you know, to look at what people were, were coping with then. I mean, you know, just put it into context, Harold Nicholson, who's a minister in government at that time, He's having, on the morning of May 26, 1940, he's seriously discussing, in the event of a German invasion, he's talking to his wife, he's saying, we need a, we need a method of suicide, right? Um, and at the same time, you've got these civil servants planning for the, for the New Jerusalem. But, you know, there's a part of it which is enormously inspirational. And, you, you know, the, the courage in the face of these existential threats is, is incredible. The other side of it, and I want to put the other side, is the other side, well, it actually is this inspirational. Is it just heads in the sand? Is it self-indulgent? And the, the person who put this argument across, and you talk about it in your book, is Corelli Barnett, who is maybe not so well known now, but I think in you know, the 80s, maybe a bit of an influence on Thatcher. And Corelli Barnett's point is this is all, um, paraphrase, this is all self-indulgent. <laughs> and he says, this is a quote from Corelli Barnett, he says, whilst in 1940-41, Winston Churchill and the nation at large were fighting for sheer survival, members of the British cultural elite had begun to busy themselves with design studies for a new Jerusalem to be built in Britain after the war was won. So he would be listening to this and going, well, this, this is the problem with Britain. This isn't inspirational. They're all worrying about this. You've got enormous existential threat you should be confronting. What do you, what do you make of that? Corelli Barnett's books, uh, particularly The Audit of War, which is what I drew on when I was writing the 1944 Education Act, is, are absolutely brilliant. I mean, they're very, very well-informed, very well-argued polemics. And he's, he basically is his argument, and, and it, it appears in other books about other areas, is Britain, uh, because of this uh, obsession with the New Jerusalem, lost the opportunity to become a science and technology superpower, and it didn't, uh, it never did that. Now, he's got a big point, which is that we've never, uh, in this country, or never throughout the 20th century, took technological education, technological prowess uh, seriously, and so we... Uh, fell behind what happened in Germany and later in Japan and before that in America. So he does have a really big point. But um, if I ever get in the Dictionary of National Biographies, Daisy, it will be for saying the road to hell in education is paved with false dichotomies. <laughs> and and this is, yeah. a this is a classic false okay. dichotomy. Yeah. Because if you put yourself back into 1940 or 41 and you've got ordinary people going through massive privation, staying up all night to watch out for incendiary bombs and all the things they had to do and putting up with rationing and children being evacuated. 
you do have to have a story about what the country's going to be like after the war. It's part of winning the war, so you can't separate it. It's not just a kind of cultural elite having playing a game. It is a really important part of telling the story um, uh, of how of what the war is for and how it's going to be better afterwards. So I, I personally, I, I I think Corelli Barnett does make a really strong point, and I do think we'll come to this uh, when we talk about the implementation of the Act. I do think we missed out on technological education. I do think we undervalued uh, that right through the post-war era. So he has a big point, but you couldn't at, in 1940 and 41 have just ignored the desire, the overwhelming desire of the British people for a better Britain after the war, given the low dishonest decade they just lived through and the war they were now living I, I through. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I do agree. And, and like you, actually, I do find Corelli Barnett very interesting, but I, I also think, particularly since he wrote his books, there's been some interesting critiques of what he's written. And actually, even from the, the military historical side, there's a few military historians who would critique Barnett and his, you know, similar people as saying, well, if you only read them, you'd wonder how Britain won the war, right? And actually, yeah. part of the reason Britain wins the war, well, it can't be that bad at science and technology if it does win in the end. And you've got people like David Edgerton and Phillips O'Brien who write very persuasively on that nowadays. And as you say, people have to have something to fight for. And I think one of the most remarkable statistics of World War II is... The British and the and the American armies, I think they they don't shoot anyone for desertion, and the Germans shoot twenty thousand. Well, I didn't know that. That's an amazing statistic. And, and actually, the, the other thing is, if you read Churchill's six volume history of the um, of the Second World War, which I've read the first three and a half volumes of, and we'll we'll finish. It's ab- it's absolutely it's fantastic. But he did he personally took a great interest in things like radar. And he had his one of his closest advisors was the guy he called the Prof Lindemann, who was a scientist and was even even there. I think Barnett doesn't quite do justice to the extent to which science was involved in the war. But he's right that we didn't create a fantastic technical and vocational education system after the war. We didn't do that. We we, we had the chance to do it and we didn't do it. We missed it in 1918 and we missed it again in 1944. So I think that's, that's um, sort of wrap, wrap that issue up. And I, I think, as I said, I do agree with you about that. Is it self-indulgent? Is it uh, inspiring? <laughs> In that you, people have to have something to fight for and it isn't a top-down cultural elite project. There is a huge wellspring for this. But I, I do just, Lizzie will probably cut this out, but I'm going to say it anyway. When, when you think about these civil servants planning for the future at the time of Dunkirk, I always think there's um there's, there's a couple of pop cultural references you can you can put in put in here, and one that there's a famous scene in a, in a, in a Carry On film where it's Carry On Up the Khyber, and and Sid James and Joan Sims, the two characters, they're sitting having dinner whilst there's a huge uprising outside, and they're just carrying on insuantly. You know, they're just getting on with life. And they're eating their strawberry blancmange. You know, that's one kind of take on Britain, isn't it? The stiff upper lip. The bombs are raining down, but we carry on anyway. And the other one I think of is Captain Mannering in Dad's Army, who's always saying, don't you know there's a war on? You know, we can't possibly be doing this. <laughs> and even though I sort of do agree with you on this, ultimately, I think it is it is inspiring that they got on with it. There is part of me that, that, that does still think, goodness, to be taking on this huge project at a time when you're not even sure the British state will exist. Yeah, that, that is a good reference. And, and there, there is that element in the British character. And I think we all, we all kind of uh, know and respect it, but also laugh at it. Hence, it's in the Carry On film. But but right now in Ukraine, somebody needs to be designing Ukraine after the war because we, they will make a huge mistake if they think Ukraine before the war was a good place to live. It wasn't. It had oligarchs out of control. It had lots of corruption in government. The reason Zelensky was, was elected at all was because it was a mess. 
So unless they do, because once if and when the war is over, it's too late. Absolutely. And wars stir up demand for social change. People, yeah. people want that. As I say, it's not it's not just a top down project. People have seen things can work differently. They know things can be different and they want it to be different. And I, I describe in the book in, in, in the, the, the book about the 44 for, um, in that in that chapter called Ferment, Ronnie Gould, the then general secretary of the NUT uh, and possibly the, the best general secretary the NUT ever had traveling the country on really inconvenient trains, making speeches to huge audiences. I love that bit. And he talks about a day where he's traveling from kind of Lincoln to Worksop to London and there's a blackout and he doesn't get any food and people are turning out to hear him speak. Yes, we, f- we forget that. that I mean, that way, so it was, it was a genuine popular movement. And so whatever Corelli Barnett wanted, it was going to happen. And the question for government is how much do you shape it and influence it and how much do you respond to it now and how much do you wait? And that brings us really nicely to the next thing I want to talk about, which uh, I'd say two of the big personalities in this uh, who are on either sides of the how much should government be shaping this. And that is Butler himself. Uh, and I should say he's, he's Rab Butler, but his full name is Richard Austin Butler. And the Rab is the 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 the, the um the initials. So Rab Butler, that's what he's known as. And the other key figure here is, I think in the early stage, obviously, is Churchill. And in terms of that idea of what should government be doing, is it shaping, is it is it leading, where does it go? Butler and Churchill are kind of on either sides of that of, of that of that issue. We're at danger of setting up another false dichotomy, aren't we? Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's do it. I think, I think, I think on this one, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna go for the false dichotomy. I, I think there is a yes. dichotomy. I think they really are on either sides of, of this issue and of the where the Conservative Party is. And in fact, they basically represent two opposing wings of the Conservative Party. And I was wondering, maybe this is a stretch, and you know, you, you might not like this, but is the analogy today they're a bit like maybe Rory Stewart, Boris Johnson? I, d- I don't know. Um, maybe that's too. Maybe that's a bit too too uh, uh, too generous for Boris. There's an element. There's, I, there's an element to it, and I, I, I do. I, it might be wings of the Tory party, but it's also politicians with very different perspectives. Individuals. Um, so, so if, you, if I take Churchill, Ch- Churchill's view. I mean, he became prime minister in 1940 at that moment of crisis. Uh, and if you read anything he wrote or anything he said, and I uh, or anything written about him at the time. His sole focus was on how do we win the war. He doesn't want any distractions, and but he's been he's been around a long time. He was there in 1902 when um, there was the big controversy about Rome on the rates. Was the state going to fund Catholic schools, which uh, which which happened? Um, and he knew that had been very divisive. He'd he. And he couldn't face the idea that there'd be some controversy like that during the war, dividing Britain when the sole focus had to be on winning the war. So he was uh, at the time of, I mean, the, but Butler's um, predecessor, Hervald Ramsbottom, was not a significant figure in history. He wasn't a bad man, but he wasn't doing much. And that was fine by Churchill. But then when Churchill sends Butler there, Butler asked quite early on, I'd quite like to put through a measure of reform and Churchill says the wrong time. This is 1941. We've got a war on. So you're right. It is a genuine dichotomy. Churchill didn't want to reform, but Butler's 38 years old. He wants to make his name. In the 30s, the 1930s, he had clashed with Churchill, first of all over India and then over appeasement. He was a, an arch appeaser along with Lord Halifax, but they'd been part of the foreign policy team. And Churchill obviously had been on the other side of that argument. Uh, so things things between them to me it's still an interesting unresolved question of why Churchill gave Butler the job at all I mean he could have 
dispatched him to the back benches. Um, and I think it's because he knew Butler was competent uh, and he didn't think education was very important. So he put a competent person to run a, a small bit of the, uh, and then you're not going to have to worry about it too much. And uh, I, the, the book covers some of the conversations they had at the beginning where Churchill uh, says he wouldn't like to um, wipe children's noses, uh, 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 et cetera, et cetera, uh, during the war. And he also says, he says, I think I, I, w I wouldn't be averse to you introducing a note of patriotism into the schools. And Butler, Butler, uh, and, and Churchill goes on, he says, could you teach the children that Wolf won Quebec? Uh, and Butler <laughs> says, well, we don't do that sort of thing. Um, and actually at the time in the 1940s, people were thinking that's what the people we're fighting against do. Uh, and so, um, and then Churchill says, no, I don't mean do it by instruction, do it by example, uh, and leaves it at that. So, so, so Butler, Butler doesn't really know what to do at that point. And, uh, but, but he, he, in his head, this is a big opportunity. He's been part of conservative central office, but now he's got a moment and he's going to work out how to make his mark. And he's lucky because that group of officials that we talked about, uh, who was set up in, in, in uh, November 1939, have just reported before Butler became Secretary of State or, or, or President of the Board of Education in 1941. They've just reported in what became known as the Green Book. And by the way, that we, we talk about green papers all the time. That was the first green paper, and it was only called the Green Paper because it had a green cover. Oh, wow. um, so that was <laughs> the first green paper, and the, the, the NUT published a critique of it, uh, and they called... Butler's, uh, sorry, the, 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 the Board of Education's paper, the light green paper, and they called theirs the sage green paper. Um, uh, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that was the origin of the, the, the green paper. Brilliant. But, yeah. but Butler's a lucky man in a way because they've done a lot of serious thinking. So he's got a kind of agenda. He adjusts it quite a lot over the next two to three years, but he's got a starting point. He didn't have to do that all over again. And he he didn't come in and say, right, well, I'm new, so I'm going to toss all that out. He he took it and just began to adapt it. And he knew he couldn't have a big argument. So he had to manage the churches, the local authorities, the teachers in a thoughtful way. And he was a master of that. So just go back to this this Butler-Churchill kind of, you know, um, d debate. So I think you're right to say Churchill... He part of him just doesn't want any distractions. And that's one of the reasons he's kind of not that interested in education. But you do get the impression just with everything with Churchill's personality that he gets the impression. Why would any red blooded male want to be bothering with education? Um, and, you know, that line that you said, Churchill said, uh, this is Butler quoting in his memoirs. He says, Churchill said that if I wanted to go to education, he'd be glad to send me, but that he wouldn't like to wipe children's noses and smack their behinds during the war. <laughs> Um, so Churchill is just looks at a lot of these things as being a bit, a bit beneath him. And the other, the other great line you quote, which I hadn't heard before, but is the most Churchill thing ever. I thought they should put this up on the uh, door at Chartwell. Um, early in his political career, Churchill had turned down a post at the local government board saying characteristically that he did not want to spend time shut up in a soup kitchen with Beatrice Webb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's a very Churchill thing to say. It's a very Churchill thing. Um, and whereas Butler is very happy, as you were saying, you know, pulling all the levers, getting the local government, talking to people in education. He he likes that. And Churchill just doesn't, really. Yeah, so those classic political skills of negotiating, finding ways through, finding um, the right compromise, he is very good at. And we ought to mention, in passing at least, his deputy, who is James Tudor Ede, 
a Labour politician uh, who is uh, the, the Minister of State and who later became Home Secretary in the Attlee government, who was very well connected into the Labour movement, very good at bringing the local authority, the Labour local authorities on board. And they were they were a great team. His diary, which is in the British Library, which I got out when I was in that, is extraordinary. He, he, he wrote daily, every day, which train he got in from uh, somewhere in Surrey into London. Uh, and he filled every page from side to side because they didn't want to waste any paper in the wall. So it's small print. But it, it, if you ever get a chance, if you're an archivist, um, uh, um, Elizabeth, you might want to go and have a look at it. It's a fantastic document. But he he was he was he was a, a master, and he worked really well with Butler. So it's a very very good team effort. Yeah. When you spoke about his um, his diary, it made me think of uh, you. You mentioned Auden earlier on, but there's that lovely other Auden poem, um, Musée de Beaux Arts, which is all about how even when big things are going on, people have kind of got to get their supper and and, and do do ordinary things. And you got that impression with Tutor E that you have these enormous uh, issues of state and he's diligently writing his diary on, you know, small pieces of paper. Yeah, that's a great record. One, one last thing on Churchill and then we'll, we'll move on. There's a there's that great there's a great um, quotation by Isaiah Berlin where he says it talks about different styles of thinking. And he talks about the hedgehog and the fox. And he says the hedgehog knows one big thing and the fox knows many little things. Um, and when people come up with examples of these, they'll often say, well, Churchill is your big example of the hedgehog. He knew one big thing. And he got that one big thing right. So he stood out against Nazi Germany. He said all along, this is a problem. He wasn't an appeaser. And on that huge thing, he was he was right. But I think what people forget now is on so many other issues, he was wrong. And when I say wrong, I just mean, I don't mean that necessarily in a moral sense, but just in a sense that nobody really agreed with him. <laughs> Whereas Butler's, Butler's kind of the other way around. Butler, for the rest of his career, is kind of dogged by the decisions he makes in 3940 uh, around appeasement. So he's associated forever with Halifax and appeasement. And there's this story which is very foggy about perhaps he was going to the Swedish ambassador or he was trying to make kind of peace, a peace, a peace approach at a time of, of, of huge national peril. And, and that affects the rest of his career. But on all the other issues, he's, he pretty much is on the side of, of, of public opinion. And he gets a lot of those right. I think you've got that. You've nailed that exactly. Uh, that is totally, totally right. And, and as you say, the the butler's meeting with Pritz from the Swedish embassy, he he was at serious risk of being um, thrown out of government and never appearing again for a long time. He was lucky to get away with that. Yeah, absolutely. And But then on, on all these other issues, so on education, he's on the side of where the British people are. Post-war, they, there's a term for him in Gates called butskillism which is, you know, essentially that's what they, they represent, the economic consensus of the post-war years. He does all the great officers of state apart from prime minister. So he, he kind of is, is on the side of, of, of where the British people are on so many other issues and on this one on education. And for all that Churchill scoffs and, you know, tries to dismiss it, he, he kind of comes out, comes out on top, doesn't he? Really, he does, and we, we we can't ignore Churchill because we we'll have to come back to it in 1943 and 44. But uh, you're you're right. I think you've got that absolutely c- completely right, Daisy. And it, it it's a it's a very interesting um, case study, and, and it's interesting to wonder if that's why in the end Butler wasn't ever going to be prime minister because he's basically a compromiser, uh, uh, somebody who finds his way through the critique, certainly from from the left, but not the far left of the Butler Act, is it, it's with too many compromises with the churches, for example. Uh, why didn't they deal with the private schools? Butler set up a committee to look at the private schools with the conscious 
aim of getting it off the agenda. Uh, as he put it, I, I've pushed it into a, a first-class siding, uh, pushed that train into a first-class. So <laughs> he, he knew what he was doing. He just, he didn't think, and he was probably right, he didn't think he could get a 44 Act with the whole private school thing coming up in the war because it would have been too divisive. So he just shunts it into a siding. Yeah, and all those things make perfect sense, actually, if you're doing something on education, but not necessarily if you're trying to negotiate with the Nazis. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, brilliant. All right, well, we've, we've spent a bit of time on that. So I think, yeah, Lizzie, you've got some questions about the, the religious side of things, haven't you? Yeah, I think that brings us on really nicely, the, the, his ability as a, a negotiator and this consummate politician, really. So in a previous episode, we talked about the 1870 Education Act, and one of the difficulties was explaining to a modern audience the importance of faith in those debates surrounding school funding and religious education in schools. And that's still really the case in, in 1944. You know, religion is playing playing a big role and a bigger role than we're now accustomed to. Could you explain some of that religious opposition to the Butler Act? Yes. And by the way, just as a, a piece of context, when we were doing, when I was with David Bunkett in the early years of the Blair administration in the DfE, and we put the 1988 School Standards and Framework Act through, Negotiations with the churches were significant in that. You, you couldn't ignore the churches, even in our era. So that, that I'm talking about that—that that was '98. And uh, and if you look at the history, you'll find that in the the Blair era, uh, with a significant input from Andrew Adonis, that is the biggest expansion of Church of England state-funded Church of England education since the '44 Act. So. It, 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 the, this religious strand goes right the way through, and it's, it's not. It's always a bit controversial. But yes, first is first is Britain was a overwhelmingly Christian country where most people went to church, but not everybody went to the Church of England. There was a significant Catholic minority, especially in places like Lancashire, but all, all across the country. Uh, and then there were the non-conformists, the people who uh, were um, Baptists and um, uh, Presbyterians and. Uh, and Quakers, uh, who, who are quite a small minority, incidentally. But the so that so you've got these three big categories. It's 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 a very big generalisation, but it's the only way to to think about this in in the time we've got. And the the compromises in 1870 and 1902, repeated in 1918, and now being debated in 1944, were how to how to deal with the relationship between the state and the Anglican Church, the the, the Church of England, and the Catholic at the Catholic Church. And one way to do that, which is where they ended up, is that those schools had got state funding, but they were very under-resourced from a capital point of view and other and others. So the, 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 the churches, and neither the Catholic Church nor the Church of England have been able to put the investment in. So they wanted state investment. But if the state was going to make investment, this is Butler's argument and e, Tutor Reed's argument, that, that there has to be, they have to get something in return for it some control or some influence. So you end up with voluntary control status, which is more state funding, more control, and voluntary aided status, which is, which is uh, still significant state funding, but more freedom. And you're trying to get that compromise with each of the churches. And the, the, the churches are thinking all the time, how do we maintain our religious ethos? How do we maintain the daily act of worship? They go back and debate again in 1940s, the Cooper Temple Clause that you will remember that gave um, parents the, the freedom to take a child out of religious education. And then there were, there were compromises that the NUT and the teachers wanted where they, they wanted teachers to be able to teach without having to adopt a particular 
religion and so on. So it was very complicated and it took a lot of patience on Butler's part and Tudor Ede's part to get the churches there. The Anglicans were easier to square because Archbishop of Temple was basically really part of this whole thing and really wanted it to work out. The Catholics were more suspicious, perhaps with good reason given the history, but also needed funding more. And they they were right till the end quite sceptical. There's one of my absolutely favourite moments in the whole thing. When I wrote the book on the 44 Act, I was very keen to put the parliamentary debate into it because we almost totally ignore that in modern times. We, we nobody, you very, very rarely read a proper account of a parliamentary debate. But in the parliamentary debate on the second reading of the 44 Education Act, Butler is partway through his speech and the Catholic Monsignor comes into the public gallery <laughs> and the sun breaks through, his red hair is lighted up and Butler looks up at him and he said he, he quotes that famous hymn ye, ye fearful saints fresh courage take the clouds ye so much dread are filled with mercy and will break in blessings on your head i mean that is brilliant um uh and 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 in the end he got them there they were quite reluctant to go in, but actually it was the saving of i mean the saving of catholic education and it's easy it's, it's worth doing a moment of international benchmarking in the u.s you couldn't fund religious schools under the constitution. So what do you end up with in, in Chicago, for example, you end up with a very low cost private Catholic system with the state looking desperately for ways of funding it, but, but, but not being able to because of, the compromise, because of the constitution. You go to Australia, you end up with a big Catholic systems that are outside the state system because they haven't been brought in in the way that Butler brought the Catholics in. But the state subsidizes them massively. So although they're private schools, they're getting big state subsidies. So people criticize the voluntary aided and voluntary controlled element. But actually, to, I think it was one of the best ways of managing that relationship between the state and the churches. And, and I credit Butler with that. And, and the voluntary aided and voluntary controlled. I mean, a lot of the Butler Act's infrastructure isn't with us anymore, but that absolutely is with us. Um, and, and as you say, it, it meant that a lot of these quite run the rundown buildings, a lot of these religious schools that they could get some money, some capital. Yeah, and and the, the, uh, throughout all of that, the non-conformists who were quite influential in the Liberal Party in 1902 and 1918, but uh, but less influential, but still influential in the Labour Party, they didn't want state-funded those churches. So so the the, the they were all going to follow the 1944 uh, Education Act in the way it described what the role of education was. Uh, teachers would would have freedom of conscience and all that. So the the, the, the nonconformists was less of a clamour than it had been in 1902, but they were still significant and they needed to be brought on board as well. And they were big on the whole New Jerusalem thing, so they they basically got behind it. 